This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Peter, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be back. So today, folks, we're talking about the debt ceiling. So maybe just to warm everybody up before we get into the more philosophical issues, can you just summarize? Because I kind of tune it. It's, I, I know it's we're on the verge of catastrophe and, you know, the Republicans <laughs> are monsters and hypocrites and so forth, which but, you know, that's not really news. We all we always know that. Right. So can you just tell us what the what the latest is in the, the scuttlebutt? Yeah, so of course we have these debt ceiling crises roughly uh, once every year at this point. Uh, but so this time, like in the past, we're at the stage where time is running out. Janet Yellen is warning that the so-called X date, when catastrophe strikes and they run out of money, uh, that's supposedly going to hit quote as early as June first. So that puts us at what about eight days or so. So far, there's been very little progress from both sides, which I think as libertarians, that's very encouraging for us. Uh, markets, uh, there was a turn yesterday afternoon, okay? Up until now, markets had been super relaxed, you know, no concern. CNN was going on about the impending catastrophe, New York Times, the usual suspects, but the markets weren't having any of it. Finally, uh, yesterday afternoon, markets started tanking. Gold went up. Bitcoin went up. VIX, the volatility uh, index in financial markets, that finally started moving. Uh, and then today, of course, we had another crash really across the board. And so it looks like markets are finally starting to accept that maybe Republicans aren't uh, playing around. Maybe they're not acting this time that, uh, you know, we could actually have some kind of impasse and maybe even a technical default, like uh, I think it was 2011, the last time that we had one of those. So it is actually starting to get more interesting than it usually is. But, you know, of course, the smart money has to assume that they're going to pretend to fight. And then we'll get a uniparty debt ceiling hike that makes cosmetic changes and not much else. Mm. The, the thing that I, I like just in terms of like a nerdy sort of accounting cash flow perspective with these things is... The, they're past the put like whenever these crises happen, there's like a bunch of tricks that the Treasury Secretary can use to kind of postpone. You know, it's things like, oh, well, we're supposed to fund the pensions of government employees. So technically we can like issue IOUs into those things. You know what I mean? Like it's not officially legally binding Treasury debt. You know, like there's little tricks that they can play that, you know, they can sort of get past the the issue that it's not legally part of the federal debt. In, but yet they're kind of doing you know, little tricks here and there. So anyway, I, I, I like. I, we don't need to dwell unless you have a comment you want to make. But th th those are the things that kind of intrigue me when when it's. So we're past the point at which, you know, they've hit the ceiling already. Is what, is what in the sense like, and, and they're doing like the, when they say, "Oh, we can go up to this date." It's like that's when the tricks even run out, and then they really are, you know, in trouble. Yeah, in theory, and that's they call it extraordinary measures, right? Yeah. Which is where they they kind of move money from one account that uh, you know they're not really supposed to use that for day to day expenses, but they can. And then, of course, the other question is, uh, I mean, the I don't think anybody in the federal government has any idea how much money they have. Uh, you know, there's there's a law that's been on the books for decades that says that every single agency of the government is supposed to pass a proper audit. 
And famously, there's like one tiny little department, like the Geological Survey of Oceans or something, like some eight-person department that famously passes every year and makes the rest of the government look bad. But fundamentally, none of them can pass this. I, I, I mean, really, I have no idea how much money is in there. You've also got a side point that, you know, the entities that are holding the national debt, they have an incentive to play along. Right, like if you're holding a bond or you're holding some debt and a payment is missed on that, the debt itself becomes less valuable, right? So a lot of the organizations that are holding U.S. government debt are probably like super happy to pretend that IOUs are real. You know, they, they want the trade to continue, I think, as much as the government does. So, I mean, in a sense, you know, we could kind of test them out. We could just say, okay, well, let's just let's just see how much money you have uh, in the couch cushions, because I I suspect honestly that they could probably keep going for quite some time. Lots of different avenues we could pursue here, but I one point that I, I just saw you recently uh, tweet about that I, that is something that has always occurred to me is that when they link the um, the issue of the oh, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, it's the end of the world in the financial markets. And the specific linkage there is, well, because if the if the government can't borrow more, well, then it can't pay its bills, and then it can't pay interest on the existing debt holders. And that's why if we don't raise the debt ceiling, oops, automatic default, end of the world. And actually, that linkage is not necessarily the case. Um, you know, talk about how the the thing you just retweeted about prioritizing the payments. So, can you speak to that? Yeah, it's funny. So, you know, there are various congressional testimonies, sometimes by the same person, where in one testimony they say there is no way we can possibly prioritize anything. It is not, it, it you know, violates the laws of physics. Uh, we don't have the systems. Impossible. And then another testimony that says, well, it turns out, sure, yeah, we can prioritize stuff. So, you know, the trick here is that bureaucrats have you know, two goals in life that are sometimes in tension. And one of them is to drive up their budget to make us uh, give them more money. And then the other goal is to cover their own butts, right? So there, you know, <laughs> there is no living organism that is less uh, risk averse than a bureaucrat. And so in this case, simultaneously, we have Yellen and, you know, the entire treasury bureaucracy swearing up and down that there's absolutely no way that we can prioritize you know, things like Social Security or veterans payments, right? So they basically want to hold everything hostage in one lump sum. But then at the same time, we have various testimonies saying that, well, sure, yeah, of course, we've we've tested out various systems, but we're not exactly sure if they work. So, you know, I think the correct answer is in the 19th century, they managed to pay their bills. They did not even have telephones. You know, I'm sure if the U.S. government actually worked as hard as, let's say, you know, Elon Musk's Twitter employees, uh, that they could figure out a way to make it happen. And so the question is just, do they, like usual, foot drag and try to hold the economy and hold the hostage or hold, uh, you know, grandma's Social Security check hostage in order to put pressure on voters to give them everything they want? Yeah, maybe I'll take a minute here just to make sure we're not leaving some general listeners behind who aren't, you know, they, they hear people talk about the debt limit, and, and, but they don't really know, and just to connect it with what you just said. So the idea, folks, is, um, you know, Congress has to approve spending bills and, and tax bills, you know, depending on the House and what, what the kind of thing is and so forth. 
and then you know the executive goes ahead and, and implements it and then um but as a separate thing there's also a debt ceiling limit that's a statutory requirement saying that the actual outstanding amount of federal debt at any given time cannot be above a certain number and then periodically as the existing debt approaches that they have this fighting and then they will raise the ceiling all right so what the so the point is if they don't raise the ceiling that means at some point you know going forward um additional spending can only equal new revenue coming in the door right so it's not that the government has to shut down it's just they can't go deeper into debt so what does that mean it just means they can only spend in terms of what the tax receipts are so we've had plenty of tax receipts coming in the door all this time it's just the spending that has already been authorized was higher than that that they had planned on borrowing a bunch of money this quarter for example in order to pay for all the stuff because they knew the tax revenue was inadequate to meet all the spending they wanted to do and so if the debt ceiling isn't raised they can't legally issue more treasury debt in order to cover that gap so the modest point is even if it doesn't get raised that doesn't mean all government spending has to go to zero. It just means they can only spend now, you know, they have to live within their means. Like they have to have a balanced budget going forward. Incidentally, that's why this is always ludicrous when Republicans say, oh, we need a balanced budget amendment and that's what I want to do. But okay, I'll raise the debt ceiling. You wouldn't need a balanced budget amendment. Just stop voting to raise the ceiling and we have to have a balanced budget going forward from that point. And it's much easier to just not raise the ceiling than to have a constitutional amendment. So that's why they're completely full of it. But anyway, but the point being, they have tons of money coming in the door, and then they could prioritize how do we want to use this money. And so if they want th- – there's enough tax receipts coming in to pay interest on the existing debt. That's my point. Mm-hmm. So when they keep scaring people saying if we don't raise the ceiling, we have to default on the existing debt, and that's the end of the world, that's not true. They have enough money coming in. And then, you know, Peter, what you're saying is they will sometimes lamely go in and testify and say, we just – the idea of only paying some people and not others, we you know, and, and we knew we had six months to get ready for this. We we can't do that. Or and and actually, no, they do have plans in place to to yeah. do just that. I mean, we have plans in place for how would we invade Canada if we wanted to. So yeah, yeah, they have plans in place. What happens if the debt ceiling isn't raised? What would we do? Of course, they have contingency plans. And your point, Bob, is really good that, you know, a lot of this is really about theater. It's about scaring people. You know, fundamentally, if we let the debt ceiling hit, then government spending this year or federal spending would have to come down by about 22%. I think everybody listening right now can imagine a whole lot of government spending that maybe shouldn't have happened in the first place. To cut the budget by 22%, you know, so we have more than enough for debt payments, for Social Security, for veterans benefits, for school lunches and water testing and all of the, even the national parks, right? All the things that every debt ceiling battle the administration holds hostage, right? They always take the very small amount of spending that that is actually popular and they hold that hostage by pretending it's all or nothing, people. If you don't give us every last dollar that's going to, you know, bike paths to nowhere, then granny starves. We cut the school lunches. And by the way, you can't go visit the Washington Monument. I was just about to say, yeah, you shut down the Washington Monument. Yep. Yeah. Um, Just like with the other, you know, funding for the arts, it was always, you know, oh, Big Bird's going to get it if we don't, you know, do this. So that's why we need to fund pornographic stuff (laughs) with tax dollars. 
-hmm. Yeah, so they use, you know, Big Bird, they use the children, they use um, Grandma as human shields to stand in front and take the first dollar in budget cuts so they can protect all of the garbage, the other trillions of dollars of, you know, it goes to cronies, it goes to activists, a lot of it goes to fund the professional protesters, you know, uh, in the fort, what do they call it, community organizing grants, you know, a lot of the riots back in 2020. When you saw these guys, you know, their mugshots were up there. You could look up who these guys were. They literally worked for nonprofits that they were paid. Your tax dollars were paying these guys to run around and riot. I mean, it, it's once you dig into the budget, it is horrifying the garbage that's in there. So, of course, what they do is line up grandma, school lunches, you know, they, the big bird. They line all that up on the front line there to take all the fires so the rest of it can keep going. Yeah, and it's not that it's directly related to the federal issue, but, yeah, that tactic, I remember um, when I was growing up in upstate New York, there was a thing where, the, you know, it came through in the, in the school public school system. I know, folks, it's a government school system. I'm just using the vernacular. The public school system, they, they needed more money, and they were going to raise property taxes. But, like, there had been aggressive in – and in the, a lot of the people in the community were like, no, I think the schools are getting enough money. You know, they're spending – whatever, 18% more now than they were two years ago, whatever the numbers were. People say, yeah. no, we don't want, and it came to a show. And so of course, what the schools did is the first thing they cut was all the sports programs. Always. So all of the yep. students, you know, instead of like Football. laying off the extra yep. bureaucracy of people they'd hired in the previous 10 years, <laughs> instead it was like, well, gee, if you want to prove this property tax, I guess there's no sports next year. And so you, you, they had these showdowns of like public hearings on whether to do this. And all these teenagers were like in tears and like swearing at these old retired people who are like, what are you talking about? You don't. Anyway, so just pitting yeah. people against each other when obviously, you know, there could have been other cuts made that the kids wouldn't have cared about and nobody would have known except the people whose salaries were getting sliced. Um, yep. So yes, it's a, it's a very common technique. Um, so back to the debt ceiling. So, um, this is an aside. I don't know if you have an, an opinion on this, Peter, but let me just vent. Another thing about this debate that I can't stand is they'll often say, Oh, according to the 14th amendment, I mean, Biden has a constitutional <laughs> duty. He can't yeah. default on the debt. And to me, that's nutty. So the language in there is saying the debt of the federal government should not be questioned or the debt of the United States should not be questioned, something like that. This was after the Civil War. And to me, it is obvious when you go and read and it's talking about, like, is the U.S. government on the hook for debts that, um, you know, Texas or other other Confederate states issued while they were in rebellion? And so the point was this, you know, Congress was saying, Okay, now that these states came back in the union, you know, we're not on the hook for bonds issued by a Confederate state government. However, don't worry, the debt of the United States government shall not be questioned. So don't, you know, don't misunderstand. We're still good for our debts. It's just we're saying it's not our fault if some rebs decided to, you know, secede and, you know, we had to kill a bunch of them and burn their cities down to make them see the light. But, um, you know, we're, we're not on the hook for that. But don't misunderstand everybody. The debt of the U.S. government the union shall not be questioned. Now, to me, that didn't mean they were saying it's going to be metaphysically impossible for us to sometime get into a financial jam and, and default. They were right. just, you know, to me, they were just clarifying and saying just because we're not honoring Confederate debt doesn't mean you should worry that we're going to, def you know, say, oh, well, the Civil War was a big thing. We issued these these greenbacks and blah, blah, blah. And so really that doesn't count. They, they were just clarifying, no, no, we're good for 
our debts. Like, I don't know if, if you have an opinion on that, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there were 14th Amendment suits brought against FDR when he devalued the dollar, right? He, he slashed 40% of the dollar in, was it 1935? And as a result, that defaulted on 40% of the national debt, right? Including a big hunk of that debt was liberty bonds that had been bought by patriotic Americans to fund World War I, right? So he slashed all that. There were lawsuits, of course, massive lawsuits brought against that. And one of them did claim 14th Amendment violation. And the Supreme Court, it was uh, Perry, the Perry case in 1935. And they said, well, you know, uh, the, the government has to do, you know, what it needs to to manage the economy. So whether you think that that was an intimidated Supreme Court, you know, because of FDR's uh, court packing schemes, uh, at any rate, we have a precedent that, no, you, what you can clearly do is you can change the terms of the debt at will. Okay, you can define what is a dollar. You can define anything you want to it. And we know this not only from FDR. We know this from Nixon, right? So Nixon, of course, removed all gold backing for the dollar, which converted the national debt from a pile of gold into nothing, a pile of tokens. We also know this from annual inflation, Right, so if you've got eight what eight point nine percent inflation last year, uh, then the national debt is melting away at close to three trillion dollars a year. So that is most definitely changing the terms of the debt. And I mean, there, there's been not the slightest glimmer that there'd be any kind of Fourteenth Amendment issue there. So even if even if we pretend that the Fourteenth applies forevermore, apparently. The Supreme Court has put their stamp on the idea that you can change the terms wherever you want, right? Because the 14th doesn't say you can't change the terms. What it says is you shall not question. Well, so I don't question the debt. I just say perhaps we'll uh, delay paying it until the year 2300. Uh, perhaps we'll pay it in IOUs or in script or in some other token. And, you know, on the specific issue of script, I mean, again, getting into FDR, and, and this is from, there's a great book out there, American Default, that, that really goes um, in-depth into the horrors of what FDR did. Uh, but there was a period where, you know, FDR was trying to buy gold at an illegal price because he was trying to devalue the dollar. And this was clearly illegal. And it went to, uh, and, and specifically, the scheme he was using is that rather than buy the um, uh, or, sorry, rather than buying gold uh, using dollars at this illegal price, he was going to buy the gold, or sorry, he was going to use the dollars uh, to buy scrip, and then the scrip was going to go on to buy the gold. So it was this extremely transparent two-hop. It was instantly converted, okay, so that from the, from, from the people making the transaction's perspective, it was, it was just a single transaction, it was at a clearly illegal price, and yet the Supreme Court did not intervene. They let that stand. So, I mean, we have long and established precedent at this point that the government can do what it wants in terms of, you know, defining what the debt is, apparently defining what the dollar is. The national debt is in dollars. It is in, you know, it is... It, strictly speaking, you could argue it's in gold, but that's already <laughs> that that ship has already sailed. So I think, without a doubt, uh, you know, we have defaulted many times. The Supreme Court has never intervened. Uh, the Fourteenth is a dead letter. Yeah, and again, just to make sure people are getting the point here, 
like if a company issues bonds saying, you know, the owner of this GE will pay the owner of this $1,000 on this date, you know, that's a legally binding contract. It's guaranteed, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen. It's possible that date rolls around and GE says, mm -hmm. wow, we had an awful quarter. We can't pay you. Sorry. And then what happens? Like there's a haircut, they default, you know, the market crushes their stock and what, but it's, you know, it's not that, you know, well, well no, that's metaphysically impossible. Yeah, people, organizations default on their debt all the time. It happens, even if it's legally binding and guaranteed. And so the issue with, you know, the U.S. government situation is the point is um, people are trying to argue that, oh, in other words, if they don't raise the debt ceiling, then it's illegal for the federal government to go, you know, the executive branch to go ahead and, and borrow more to, you know, for the treasury to issue more debt in order to, to fund this spending that's already been approved by Congress, because no, there's this rule right here, this legally binding thing mm -hmm. that Congress said we're not allowed to do that. So the treasury would be violating the, the constitutional prerogative given to Congress to be being control of the purse strings. And so then the, you know, the flips of the people are saying, oh no, but the constitution also insists that the federal debt shall not be questioned. So you know, those two cancel out. And so Biden might as well, you know, given that he has to violate the Constitution, we argue that he should do it in the way that doesn't blow up the world and, you know, doesn't make poor inner city people not be able to eat at night or something. And so my, my right. point, again, is just to say, no, the idea that it's equally a, a violation of the Constitution, whether or not he, you know, doesn't listen to the debt ceiling, even though Congress said you can't issue more. No, we're going to, because this clause in the 14th Amendment saying that that should not be questioned. To me, that's that's not what that meant in the 14th Amendment. It wasn't saying it is impossible for the government to ever default on its debt. It was just saying, don't misunderstand when we're not honoring the Civil War Confederacy debts. We're not right. talking about union debt. So um, may, maybe, Peter, if you if we could take a minute, um, do you have any thought, like one of the objections, every time this comes up, and in fairness, somebody just put, passed around a clip of McCarthy saying it when this showdown happened under Trump. And so there he was being hypocritical. In other words, he was saying the stuff that the Democrats are saying right now. So this isn't a partisan thing, but in terms of, you know, uh, I'm wondering if you have an opinion one way or the other. The, the, so some people claim like, like this is a silly thing because there's no question that treasury is credit worthy. Like they could issue more debt. The markets would absorb that. Um, it's a weird, and it's not even talking about whether or not we should go into debt, right? Because they're saying a mm -hmm. lot of people are making it so like government should live within its means and don't raise it. They're saying raising the debt ceiling just gives the treasury the authority to issue bonds to pay for the spending that Congress has already authorized. So it's, you know what I mean? So they're saying it's like this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or whatever analogy where Congress is saying to the executive branch, here's all the spending that we're authorizing. You need to go do executive branch. And here's the, the tax system, the code that we're setting up and you authorized by, you know, signing the legislation into law. But at the same time, we're, you are not allowed to borrow more money, even though we're telling you to spend more than we know is going to come in the door. But by the way, when you're legally bound to do that spending, you can't borrow more. And so people are, yeah. are complaining and saying that's kind of a right. crazy system. So I have my thoughts, but l let me let you respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I think the simple answer is, you know, authorizing um, both the spending and authorizing the borrowing, uh, you need them both, right? So, you know, if you imagine, for example, that your boss tells you to go buy him lunch at a nice restaurant, 
and he gives you an envelope with the money to go do it. And then you go down to the steakhouse and it turns out there's only $5 in there. Well, you, you know, you've got a number of options. I suppose you could dig into your own pocket mm -hmm. uh, or you could try and, you know, buy something simpler because you figure maybe your boss is hungry. So you could stop by 7-Eleven and get him a Slim Jim. Uh, or you could just return home with the $5 intact. You know, if you hated your boss and you could just tell him, well, you have to go hungry because, look, you screwed up, man. You gave me contradictory instructions. And so I suppose that would depend whether you like your job or not. So in this case, if the administration is the employee, the question is, does the administration like the American people or not? If they do like the American people, then they're going to do their best with the contradictory instructions that we, through Congress, gave them. If they don't like us, if their goal is to punish us, and teach us a lesson so we never again cut their budget, then yeah, I suppose they would do things like, uh, you know, closing the Washington Monument and cutting off school lunches. So I guess my, thank you for that. My, my answer is consistent with what you're saying, but let, let me, my take on this stuff, and yeah. if you care one way or the other, you want to push back or, <laughs> or not, is, um, so they're, they're right, when, like, so people will like make an analogy to, a, to an individual or a household and say, mm -hmm. this would be like if we went out to dinner we ordered all kinds of stuff from, you know, and then they brought us the food and we ate it. And then when they brought us the bill, we said, oh, you know what? Um, all I have on me are credit cards. And I've already promised myself I wasn't going to go deeper into debt this month. So I'm, ref I'm not going to pay for this because, you know, I, ha I had this. And so they're saying that's how irresponsible and corrupt and just stupid these, these crises are when this happens. The Congress wants to spend a bunch of money, but then the same Congress says, oh, but we don't want to borrow to do so. Like, what the heck? But... My point is, you're right. If it were just one unitary decision maker, that would be weird, but it's not. There's a whole collection and there's different coalitions mm -hmm. and, th and historically where this ceiling came from was during World War I, where up to that point, Congress had to approve each additional mm -hmm. issuance of bonds. Right. But then because money was coming and going and, hey, there's a war on, they just decided in World War I that like, they can't be that slow. Let's just give the Treasury kind of the authority on the ground to be able to make some of these financing decisions, but they still wanted to have ultimate control. They didn't, they didn't want to give a blank check literally to the treasury to just, oh, issue as many bonds as you want because they were concerned that might allow them to issue, you know what I mean? Like even though technically Congress should still be in charge of being able to authorize every expenditure, I think part of the worry was if the treasury can just start issuing bonds and getting money, maybe they're going to come up with creative ways to spend it that they're going to mm -hmm. argue is not in violation. Like, oh, no, this isn't officially government's expenditure. What this is is just a cash transfer. You, you know what I mean? Like they could come up, if they can get the money somehow by issuing bonds without Congress being able to stop them from doing that, they could come up with ways to spend the money that Congress hadn't authorized. So that was the concern. So to me, it's just an extra check. Like, like right. Just like a, a balanced budget amendment. One could argue, well, that's stupid. If Congress doesn't want to spend more than it takes in, just don't do it. But, right. the, but to have the balanced budget amendment is like this extra rule that forces them, you know, collectively to, to do that. And, and so I don't think there's anything contradictory. But just like in your example, there would be nothing weird if the boss says, OK, here's the company credit card. But it, under no circumstances are you allowed to put more than a thousand dollars a month on this thing. Right. You know, like that could just be an extra check. And yeah, if in a given month it turned out that someone's like, oh, hey, the orders you gave me for what to get from the deli, I would need to put more than a thousand. What do you want me to do? It, it doesn't just mean willy-nilly. You can just go ahead and violate the one. You know what I mean? Like In other words, the fact that there's right. two different rules in place 
is just because, yeah, with a large organization, it's kind of hard to control everything. And so you might have these rules that in some cases end up contradicting each other, but it doesn't mean the existence of that other check is stupid. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you're... You were mentioning how before World War One, the way it would work is that you know they would they would have some new spending program and then they would specifically authorize debt tied to that, right? It'd be like a bond issuance so we can build a canal or something. And I mean, you know, nothing stopping them from going back to that system, right? In other words, mm-hmm. if we have this debt ceiling and then they come in and they say, okay, well, you, you know, separate from that now because we want to you know provide school lunches, we can do something extra. I mean, Congress is free to do it any way they want. You know, they, they changed the system in, in World War I, but, um, but they're free to go back to the old system. Um, and, you know, of course, I, I, I mean, I think that would be a good idea, right, that they actually connect spending, connect the costs of spending with the alleged benefit of spending rather than today when, you know, it's, it's like they're sort of going on in separate parts of the movie and I think voters don't necessarily connect them, right? And this is kind of a larger issue. I think um, all of us talk about this a lot where, you know, you'll have these trillion dollar spending plans and voters don't really act like it's real money, right? We saw this mm-hmm. with the uh, student loans, for example, where, you know, even voters who didn't have any student loans who were essentially, I mean, they were, they were their money was being taken functionally, right? Because one of the biggest assets that the U.S. government has is student loans. Uh, but even they didn't seem too upset about it, you know, and I think there's, there's sort of a society-wide issue that people do not feel like any of this uh, money is real. And so maybe getting back to a system where spending and debt is actually directly uh, connected might help um, sort of focus, yeah. focus voters' minds, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do like what you're saying there, that it, there is a sort of, um, I don't know what, uh, legitimacy or, or, or just something hard about, hey, you know, we got to build a new uh, bridge here and it's going to cost $10 million. So we're going to float some municipal bonds, raise the money that way, and then we're going to have a toll on the bridge. But those revenues go to retiring that bond. And once that bond is mm-hmm. paid off or those bonds are paid off, that were issued to fund the bridge, then you know the, we the we just use the the we we lower the toll or whatever, or maybe that's the, the one they need to do more maintenance or whatever. But yeah, right. where the the revenues are associated with particular debts and it's, it's more you know contained for a particular project as opposed to just open ended. Hey everybody, give us thirty five percent of your money, and yeah. oh, we're also going to spend a bunch, and you know the two aren't really connected so much. And if we have if, the, if there's a gap, then we'll float some bonds, and you know that that's yeah. how it works. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's, I mean, I think it's really kind of part of a larger issue where all of the tough decisions, like Congress doesn't make them anymore, right? So they, they outsource debt to Treasury, like it doesn't seem like it's them that's actually mm-hmm. creating the debt, you know, the debt's sort of happening in the abstract. Um, they also outsource all of, I mean, functionally, almost all of the laws and regulations that hit us every year. Right, those are generated from the executive branch, from the administration. Like Congress doesn't actually vote on any of this crap. Almost nothing does Congress vote on. So it's like they they are outsourcing the entire management of the country from the debt to the spending to the laws to this unelected bureaucracy to really kind of a deep state fundamentally because you know that bureaucracy develops its own goals in life that. Because it's not elected, those might be completely at odd with what the American people uh, actually want. 
So you know, it would probably be extremely healthy if we would yank all this stuff back, right? So rather than having you know a debt ceiling on autopilot, rather than having laws on autopilot uh, and spending on autopilot, you know, one of the discussions throughout this debt ceiling discussion has you know they keep pounding away how almost all the spending is mandatory, mandatory. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that. This, we are a uh, republic where the people are sovereign. Nothing is actually mandatory. There is, you know, there there is no mandatory spending in the Constitution. So, what exactly mm-hmm. do you mean by mandatory? And the answer is Congress pretends that all is it's just completely out of our hands. Yep, we can't do yep. a thing about it. I mean, they're entitled to it. They're called entitlements. We can't cut <laughs> that's that. Right. You know? That's right. We, <laughs> How can we you promise. take away something someone's entitled to? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I mean, really, it's it's across the board. You know, this this also happens with uh, military affairs. You know, we say, no, no, no. You know, we've been we've been protecting Japan for 80 years. Surely we must go on doing it for free. I mean, there's a whole lot of obligations that people are pretending are there. And, you know, the the only sovereign in this nation are the people. And if we want to protect Japan, if we want to ditch the debt or redefine the terms into oblivion, turn it into script, there's a whole lot of stuff that the people can do. But I think people forget this because they're, you know, the representatives of the people in Washington are Congress and the president. And that's it. And both of them you know, are so remote, right? Like Congress has taken itself out of uh, the fisc- uh, a lot of the fiscal and the legal uh, decisions in the country. Even the presidency, I mean, you've got how many millions of federal employees? Many of them don't care what the president says. We saw that under Trump. You know, he would command them to do something and speaking as the representative of the people, you would think they would do it, right? And they didn't. So, you know, we have this massive disconnect where it's like the U.S. is halfway to, to the European Union at this point in terms of remoteness from the people who are, in theory, in charge of the country, which is us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, incidentally, another just a interesting side bit here is earlier you said something like, uh, you know, if, if they had to obey, abide by the debt ceiling, it just means spending would have to drop 20% or something like that. Yeah. It's actually... Um, besides that, like they could maybe just cut it 10% and just start selling off some federal assets. Oh, I love that idea, Bob. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause sell cause that I, stuff but, off. Yeah. yeah. For, a, um, for an econ log article or, or no econ lib article, uh, several years ago, I just did back of the end. I just showed how they could quickly raise a trillion dollars like yeah. without even crashing the prices of certain things, you know, selling some of the oils, you know, the federal government owns all kinds of land. Yep. Um, you know, and, so, and so, like, there's at least one state where I think the federal government owns more than 51 percent of the land. Um, yeah, Nevada is over 80 percent. Almost the entire state of Nevada is government owned. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. it's um, the point is there, and they have like lease in, in, in this article. So folks, I'll if you if you're curious, we'll link to it on this episode. Um, they have all kinds of like offshore. In other words, they could mm-hmm. sell the rights to private companies to go explore looking for oil deposits offshore. For sure. You know, there's all kinds of yeah. assets the federal government controls that they could sell. Just like any normal company, if you hit hard times, well, yeah, you can cut spending. And then what do you do if you have cash flows? You just start selling off some assets. Every yeah. other, you know, there's no reason that the U.S. government can't do that. So, again, these crocodile tears about, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we have to stop sending checks to grandma no, that's a choice. Like meaning, we couldn't possibly sell off some of our land in Nevada. You know, clearly, Grandma's going to take the hit. 
Yeah, Rothbard uh, had an article on default, and right, he was saying that, you know, companies default all the time, as you were saying earlier, and, uh, you know, they, they would have to sell off assets. The mineral, you know, there are various estimates on the uh, value of the mineral rights in government land, but, uh, I mean, there are credible estimates out there of $20 trillion or more. I mean, yeah. it is a massive mm -hmm. amount. And, you know, not only could you perhaps pay off the entire national debt with that. Uh, moreover, putting those things into production is actually good for the economy, right? So, you know, actually drilling in, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, not only would that be good for the American people uh, in, in terms of the money that would, you know, we could retire federal debt, but that would actually lower oil prices. And this is mm -hmm. across the board. You know, during the pandemic, uh, Congress already showed that it can meet via Zoom. So, I mean, Congress is a very valuable building. It's a big building. So perhaps they could meet like in a strip mall in New Jersey or somewhere, um, you know, some, some lower value piece of real estate. Or apparently they could just do it all online via Zoom. So it seems like there are a lot of assets on the federal level that could be uh, sold off, taken out of the dead hand of government and returned to, you know, the productive economy. Yeah, and again... You know, for people who are really thinking through the logic of it, they could, if they really wanted to do it, they could do it more. So like, yeah, if they if they tried to sell twenty trillion dollars worth of mineral deposits next Thursday, that would probably crash mm -hmm. the price. Okay, yeah. so you know, sell off one percent a week or so. You know what I mean? And, and in conjunction with spending cuts, again, they could do a moderate thing where clearly they don't have to default on the debt. They can make the pay, you know, Social Security, Medicare payments, whatever, and maybe oh yeah, that new fighter program that or fighter jet program we were going to fund. We might have to wait 18 months to pull the trigger on that, no pun intended. Right. And, and oh, sorry. Well, that's what happens when you've been spending way above your means for decades. You know, occasionally yeah. you've got to cut back. Sorry. And so there, you know, that, that this isn't like some impossible thing or some unreasonable request. Um, the, the thing that bothers me is how they frame it that this isn't even considered. You know what I mean? They just state like right. it's obvious that yeah, the only option is, you know, either raise the debt ceiling or default on the treasuries and the whole financial system collapses. Even on that, like you were you were mentioning Rothbard, so maybe uh, as we wrap up here, we're looking at the clock. Um, do, how, how do you feel about like you know? So there's two, I guess, two questions. One is like from a libertarian ethical or moral perspective, you know, should the go should the government try to honor the the debt or not? And then just economically, you know, as you as an economist, you know, putting aside ethical considerations, you know, what would actually happen if they really did default? you know, in terms of finan you know, financial implications? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I think probably you and I have both been thinking a lot about that. This uh, just because, you know, it's, it's kind of a fun um, sci-fi topic. Uh, I mean, personally, morally, I would like them to default. Um, I think they would need to issue new debt. This is very common, by the way. When countries all over the world default, they'll get rid of their old debt and they'll issue some new debt. Basically, whoever is politically sympathetic is going to get new debt. Uh, so for Social Security and veterans and right, there are certain groups that I think Americans can all agree, um, you know, should get what they're owed. Uh, but the vast majority of the debt, I think, you know, America, there would not be enormous political pressure to reissue that debt to, say, China or Wall Street or a lot of other entities. Um, so that's on the moral point. And, you know, I figure... Some of these organizations, like, I don't really want people uh, funding governments in the first place, right? I would rather that capital be deployed to useful things instead of dumped into the black hole of government. 
So, you know, if China lent a bunch of money to the U.S. government, uh, honestly, I'm not going to shed too many tears if they get stiffed on that. Uh, and then the broader question is, what happens to the economy at large? And, you know, there are a ton of moving parts there. Uh, there's consequences for the value of the dollar, for the value of, you know, any sort of fixed asset across the board. Um, in many of those cases, it actually goes both directions, right? So, for example, if you defaulted on the national debt and you asked what would that do for the U.S. dollar, well, on the one hand, foreigners would not be very eager to hold U.S. Treasury assets going forward, like the new ones. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, you would have just canceled $31.4 trillion substitutes. And so, you know, just because of trade flows, countries have to own a certain amount of every currency of their trading partners. The U.S., a defaulted U.S., the, the, the economy will, probably will grow faster. So all these countries have to hold something in dollars. If they can't hold U.S. government bonds, then maybe they have to, what's left, corporates, mortgages. So the, there, there are a lot of sort of fun rabbit holes that you can go down mm -hmm. on the consequences um, I think you and I would probably agree that the sum of it is that you could get, you know, probably a year or two of, you know, a lot of collapsed financial institutions. Uh, it would take some time for those things to patch together. But I think on the other end of it, whether it takes two years or, I mean, probably realistically it wouldn't take more than that. You know, if we look back to really severe um, disruptions like that in other countries like Thailand or Japan, it actually doesn't take that long if the government doesn't stand in the way. Um, but anyway, so after two, three years, I would imagine that the country actually has a much brighter future. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, just to round it out, my thoughts on that, I think we're largely in agreement. Yeah, as far as the ethical stuff, like, for sure what I would say is, um, you know, given that the government is still going to tax, which, you know, from a strict libertarian Rothbardian perspective, that's stealing. So, you know, you got to stop doing that. You can't say, oh, yeah, but... We owe all this money to these people, so we have to tax everybody. You know, we have to steal a gun. You know, they would say, no, that's not, you know, you, you shouldn't have done that. It's not, it's not those taxpayers' fault that you, felt you put yourself in this situation. But given that they do have money coming in the door, whether through taxes or, you know, fees yep. or whatever, I think it's morally, from a libertarian perspective, it's better to pay, like, Social Security checks mm -hmm. rather than interest or principal return on the debt because the people who contributed to Social Security and are, in theory, owed payments, they mm -hmm. didn't choose that. That was forced upon them. Whereas right. if, you, if you, on your own, bought treasuries or you know, put into a mutual fund or whatever that does that, that was voluntary. The government wasn't forcing you to lend it money. You decided to do that. So if push comes to shove and the government can only pay some of the creditors, and don't be confused, folks, that the Social Security beneficiaries, that's not included in the actual federal debt mm -hmm. number. Right. I'm just saying... Given they got tax receipts coming in, where do they allocate it? I would think yep. pay Social Security beneficiaries because you technically owe them money legally, too, and they didn't lend you the money you know, willingly. You took it from them, and so don't worry, we'll give you more down the road. So if you default on them, they got screwed twice. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think sort of the highlight here is just that it is fun to imagine default. Um, you know, there are a lot of consequences to it. Um, you know, many good, many bad. Uh, but, you know, sort of bringing it back to reality, of course, for all the default talk that's going on in Washington, uh, there, there is nobody in Washington in either party except for people like us 
uh, who is actually like seriously considering default. Uh, nobody wants default in Washington. And, you know, there was actually an article on Mises. I can't remember the author. It was from a couple years ago. Um, but he was talking about, uh, about historical cases of U.S. defaults. And in there, he was mentioning that governments never, ever want to default. Like the last thing, they will move heaven and earth. They will break every law. They will break every rule. Uh, to avoid defaulting, not because they're stand-up guys who pay their bills, but because they know that if they default, the deficits will end immediately, right? Either uh, for a period, nobody will lend the money whatsoever. And even when some, you know, enterprising lenders come in, it's going to be at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. So governments will stiff anybody to pay investors, and we've seen that throughout this. Right? I mean, both parties, there's one thing they agree on is that investors will not be stiffed. I normally hold my tongue because I know that a straight default, or I believe that a straight default would cause a lot of short-term um, uh, disruption, right? Where I think that you, know, you would lose political support for it in the first place. Um, but, but, but right, I mean, throughout Washington, that is not even part of the conversation, right? The question is cutting spending. Default is, I think, fundamentally just scaring people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And also, again, in practice, with all this stuff, I mean, it's there's ways you could do it. Like, it's not that certain you know, uh, retirement funds, you know, pension funds would go from having a billion dollars in assets under management to zero. It's rather right. they would give like you know a five percent haircut to all the treasury bonds of 20 years duration you know whatever it's it's not that they would need to concentrate again with all these things it could be you know be given that some cuts have to be made they could spread it around in ways that you know some would be more defensible ethically than than others and it's it's not an all or nothing necessarily all right well i think that's a good spot to wrap up so folks my guest this week has been peter saint Ange. uh peter thanks so much for your insights and your time of course it's always a pleasure bob And everybody, uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.